0: good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks again for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary, uh, as been mentioned already, on this chilly uh, Sunday morning. So thank you for braving the elements. Uh, It's really good to be here with you. For those of you that have gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table, wherever you happen uh, to be. Um, If you're somebody that's new and we've never met before, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and uh, my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Also, just as a a quick side note, uh, we had planned Child dedications for uh, this morning and the two families that were bringing their, their respective kids. Um, all that this morning was kind of an audible, like all are under the weather and things going on. So we are rescheduling that. And so if you're like, hey, did they forget about the child dedication? It's possible that I could forget something, but there are six children, so 2021, there we go, all right? Uh, But um, we will have that here soon, but I'm excited to be able to open up God's word with you all um, as we journey through this series called Come and See. It's this journey through the book of John and this invitation that we get, regardless of where we are in a particular passage, there's an invitation. Would we come and know Jesus and see him to experience all that he has for us. And so whether you're somebody that's like new to Christianity, you're exploring it, you got lots of questions, you're skeptical about it, maybe you were burned by the church at some point, whatever it happens to be, we're so glad that you're here and Jesus wants to meet with you. And I pray that you meet the real Jesus. And I pray that for any of us, for all of us, regardless of how long we've been a Christian or not, like we all need more of Jesus. We all need more of his grace. And so as we've gone through this book, here's the reality. We are nearing the end. Uh, we've been in this series for the better part of 2021. We are going to be in John chapter 19 this morning. So I want to encourage you, if you brought a Bible, please turn there. We want to make our way through this great text. You as well can go to cplife.church on your phone this morning and click on uh, the second little tab there that says sermon notes or message notes. And there you will see... The text for this morning, any of the things that I put up on the slides will be there. So again, that's cplife.church. Now, John 19, we are now to the point of the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to be going through this entire chapter, and so there's far more than we have time to really get into, but I want to kind of frame it as what is like leading up to the cross. Let's look at what is taking place when Jesus is on the cross, and then let's explore for a moment, which will kind of... Swing us on into next week more specifically, but what is happening like after the cross and the setup that John gives us here in John 19 that actually infuses this whole story with so much hope and in life in the midst of what is a very difficult passage in, in many ways because we are looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the way we'll look at that, just so you know, and kind of where we're, where we're heading, trying to follow along, um, I want to look at what I think in this passage are like 10 particular lessons from the cross, and if you're like, does that mean it's a 10-point sermon? Yes, welcome, settle in, all right? Um, lunch can wait. No, I'm just kidding, all right? It will hopefully get through this, but I want to look at these particular lessons from the cross because this is the centerpiece. I mean, this is where this whole thing has been driving at, right you're at a church right now that is has cross in the name cross point like we want to make the cross central it is central and why do we talk about this why do the why does the church celebrate what happened on the cross cuz on the one hand it's this terrible tragedy and yet god uses as he always does in this upside down way he flips everything and he showcases his strength and his sovereignty and his power and so the more we understand the cross the more joy we'll have the more life we'll have and so we get the privilege of diving into the story this morning so as we get into it let me read you this quote from a book called The Cross From a Distance it's this work of like kind of biblical theology talking about how you see the cross like all throughout the scriptures and this man named Peter Bolt wrote this talking about, yes, there's individual implications, like you and I need a relationship personally with Jesus, but there's also this worldwide cosmic sense of what he's doing. And without the cross, none of it happens. And so he says this, the cross of Christ is no minor matter, simply dealing with individual salvation. The salvation of individuals through the cross of Christ unleashes a revolutionary force that transforms society to its core. The message of the cross is the only force that can change the world for the better and the only force that has actually proved it can do so. It is time for the cross of Christ to be proclaimed once again loudly and strongly. And so here's the reality. You don't need to hear my thoughts or my opinions, but what I do know is we need to hear from God through his word, and his word proclaims the cross loudly and strongly from beginning to end. It's his story and his story that he invites us into. And so our promise to you as a church, there's lots of things that might change. There's lots of things that we might tweak a program or change this or that or service order. What will not change, all right, is the centrality of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the story that needs to be proclaimed strongly and loudly. And this morning, by God's grace, we will do that together as we look at this text. And so I'm going to take it in sections. So if you want to follow along, John 19, I'm going to read the first 16 verses. We'll look at some of these initial things that lead up to the cross. So it tells us this, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged And the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, hail, king of the Jews, and were slapping his face. And Pilate went outside again and said to them, look, i bring him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, here is the man. And when the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself since I find no grounds for charging him. But we have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. And he went back into the headquarters and he asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, and anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. And he sat down in the judge's seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. So as we look at these initial verses, admittedly, there's gonna be some things that we'll just spend a moment on. We'll dive deeper into more things in the the middle section, but I just wanna call your attention to just some of the context, some of the things that, that are happening, all right? And right out of the gate, in the opening verse, it says this, that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, if you go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have various accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. They all give different insight, nuance, details, all right? But in none of them are they actually like doubling down and like giving tons of description about the pain that Jesus endured, though there certainly was pain. But what the first lesson I think we have to see in this is that it's about what's happening here is about provision, not just the amount of pain. Right. Like pain is not the point of what's happening here. Now, certainly there's pain to be flogged. I mean, you just think about what Jesus is enduring right now, right? So there's the public humiliation. You've got people that put this crown of thorns, which would have had its own pain, pushed down into his skull, cutting his forehead, blood dripping down. People are mocking him. They're slapping him. They're spitting upon him. They're taunting him. The creator of the world who created all of these people are mocking him. He would have had, at one point, his hands bound against a stake where the Roman soldiers would then go with a whip and begin whipping his back. Sometimes criminals that were tried, they would be flogged in order before they go to the cross. Some of them didn't even survive the flogging. That's how intense it was. And as bad as a whip, as bad as just a piece of leather would have been, it wasn't just a piece of leather. There's rocks and sharp objects and teeth and bones and things that are in there so that when it hit Jesus' back, it would not simply slap his skin, but would pull the flesh out. And so there's a level of pain and intensity, the searing pain that I can't even wrap my mind around. And yet, John is not trying to just tell that story, as intense as that is. He's saying, no, no, I want you to see there's something more going on that showcases God's sovereignty, showcases what God is doing here. And if you've been with us through the, this series, one of the things you know is that John is very intentional in him telling a story. There's lots of things, like there's lots of significance. There's lots of like layers to things. And so I'll reference this throughout, but just kind of keep this image in mind. Imagine you're at your computer, your phone, your tablet, whatever, you're reading some particular article, and there in the article, there's links, like you notice the text that is, that's highlighted in a different color, right? What is it? It's this hyperlink that you click that and then it takes you to this other article. Then you read that a little bit more and there's more links in that and you take it and then three hours later you're like, what have I done with my day? Like those sort of moments, right? These hyperlinks in a pre-internet age, we just need to know, like there are hyperlinks that are embedded and loaded in the text because John is saying, I want you to connect the dots. And so from the very beginning, John chapter one, John has been telling in essence a story of new creation. And he's using the significance of even like the number seven. There's seven statements that Jesus makes about his identity. Like, I'm the way, and I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light. Like, we've been studying those. Seven signs. It's different beliefs as to what compromise all seven. Some theologians, including N.T. Wright, would say the seventh sign is the crucifixion Itself. And seven is significant in the life of the Jewish people about like what God did in seven days. It's a Genesis 1 account. And so the beginning of the book of John starts with there's this darkness and the darkness does not recognize the light that is Jesus as he comes into the world. And John is telling a story of how God is going to bring about new creation. It's this beautiful thing that's unfolding. And so in this text that we just read, this particular section, yes, there's the pain, but John wants us to focus in on this line where Pilate brings out Jesus and says, here's the man. Because the day of the week that it is right now is the sixth day. The next day is the Sabbath. or is the uh, Yes, is the, the Sabbath, right? And so what you have here, if you think about the Genesis account, is what did God do on the seventh day? Well, we know he rested. What did he do on the sixth day? After creating everything, he creates man, he creates woman, he creates Adam and Eve, and is brought into the garden, like here is the man. What is being communicated here? Just we gotta see this, we're spending a little bit more time on this, because what John is presenting to us is what Jesus is doing here, what God has orchestrated to happen, is he brings him forward, like here is the man, It's a way for us, it's this hyperlink to say, oh, where have we seen this before? When God brought, here is the man that is Adam, the one who failed, the one who had us banished from God's presence. But now here is the man, the new Adam, the better Adam, the true and beautiful, the one, the second Adam that has come on the scene. And he's going to make everything right. He's going to bring about new creation. He's going to actually get us home And so that is all loaded in there. So the first lesson, again, it's about this provision of this man. Now, as we continue, Pilate then goes out. He has has him flogged. All right, in verse 5, the chief priests and the temple servants, they continue to shout, crucify him, crucify him. The second lesson I think we need to hear is this, though. Your voice is present in that crowd. And my voice is present in that crowd. When we think about this storyline of the scriptures, the reality is we are conceived like we're born in sin. We've got a sin problem. We cannot dig ourselves out of this. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put Jesus on the cross, we cannot think that we would be better. We are part of the crowd there. Perhaps you're familiar with the song, How Deep the Father's Love, though I will not sing it because it would ruin a beautiful song. Here's part of the lyrics. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin, look at the personal nature of this. My sin upon his shoulders, and ashamed I hear. Not just the mocking voice, but my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, do you hear yourself in this story? To the degree that you and I see ourselves in this story, part of the crowd, part of our voice will be the degree to which then we appreciate and worship Jesus and have gratitude for what he's actually done. That's the second lesson that we see. The third is this, that authority, it's always given, that everything is given, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, from the Father of lights is what the scriptures teach us. And so did you notice this interaction? Pilate tells Jesus, or he asks Jesus a question. Jesus is silent. That is a hyperlink back to Isaiah 53, that the lamb that's about to be slaughtered is silent before those that are about to slaughter him. And Pilate Kind of rolls up with this arrogance and this pride and says, Do you realize like who I am? Do you realize the authority that I have? Like I could put you to death or I could release you. And then Jesus, in this greatest like, mic drop moment ever, is like, you don't have any authority unless I gave it to you. Because everything comes from Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of everything. Jesus is willing to submit himself to these particular plans, but Jesus is still, make no doubt about it, he is sovereign and ruling over all of it. And so Pilate has no authority unless it's given by Jesus. You and I have no authority or control or agency unless it's been given to us, granted by Jesus. And how will we use that? How will we steward that? Pilate gets caught up in using it for himself. The Jewish people have, and the religious leaders, they have their own plans and purposes and want to use things for their way. I want my will to be done. You want your will to be done. We actually don't have anything except for what's been given to us. And so closely related to that, I think a lesson, last lesson in this particular section is that this idolatry that's taking place that is on full display, it kills, it it destroys, it doesn't bring life. The idea of idolatry is when we worship any created thing, a good gift that God has given to us, that could be a relationship, a career, that could be just maybe the influence that you might have, the things that you're able to create, all of that. But you see people here who will not submit, they will not surrender. We looked at this in more detail last week. But you've got Pilate, for one, just holding on so desperately. He becomes fearful. And the Jews know this. They play to his fear, right? Hey, if you don't do what we want, we're going to tell Caesar. Like, we're going to tattle on you, basically. And it works because Pilate knows, like, his position, his authority, like, his whole life and identity is just wrapped up in this position that he holds, and he does not want to lose it. And though he doesn't believe Jesus has done anything deserving of death, he actually believes that he should be set free. And he's tried multiple times to do this. At the end of the day, he's like, I don't want to relinquish this. It's this fear of man. And the religious leaders like, go right after it. But you think about them as well. This group of people, particularly the religious leaders that would have had most of the Old Testament committed to memory, In telling a story, they're waiting and longing for and looking for the Messiah. What are they looking for? The king. They've been hoping and waiting and praying, like waiting for the king. And then do you see what sin does? Do you see the deceitfulness of it? That it would cause a group of people to yell out, to proclaim, we have no king but Caesar. I mean, It's just unfathomable on the one hand, but this is what sin does. Tricks us into thinking like, we've gotta make it about our plans and our will. And it ultimately destroys. And you have two groups of people coming together to work against Jesus that would never have had any business working together. But man, this is what happens when we're bent. and just I I wanna have my power, I wanna have my control, I wanna have my way. And all of this then leads to Jesus being crucified. So Pilate eventually says, okay, and he hands them over to be crucified. So now let's look at verses 16 to 37. I'll read this section. This is the crucifixion account, the death of Jesus on the cross. The end of verse 16, then they took Jesus away. And carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, so it's this public place, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. It's written, it's telling us, like, hey, anyone in that area would have known at least one of those languages, so everybody is being told what is happening. So as they pass by in the, the hustle and bustle of like this busy you know, metropolitan area in that time in that place. So the chief priests of the Jews, they said to Pilate, hey, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said or that he claimed I am the king of the Jews. So they're wanting to nuance this whole thing and Pilate's having none of it. He's like, what I have written, I have written. Verse 23, and when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and they divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier And they also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. And standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished and then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, and since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. And so the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. we look at this particular text. Let's continue. What are the lessons? What are the things that are being communicated here? Why is the cross so central? What is it that we're supposed to learn? Is it just, again, to just to look at, oh, Jesus endured this horrific pain? Well, it has to be more than that. And so, one of the themes, I'd say a fifth lesson that this is showcasing to us, when we think about the sign that was put up there, that this cross really, the cross is teaching us that like this moment is the coronation for Jesus it actually is even though they're doing it in a mocking way they're doing it in a way they don't fully understand like Jesus is being showcased here when he is lifted up and he's put on that cross when the spikes and the nails are driven into his hands into his feet and the cross is there placed down with this thud into the ground like here's the reality like Jesus is showcasing for all the world in this upside down way like he actually is the king and the fact that it's written in the common languages of that time and that place shows God God's heart, again, that all people would understand that the way and the place and the way this story is heading is that one day every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne and be actually worshiping King Jesus. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And though it looks like he is being defeated in this moment, that is the furthest from what is actually taking place because the sixth lesson in this that we continue to see then that is everything is according to plan. Like everything that is transpiring here has been part of God's plan from the beginning. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter three when the curses are pronounced on Adam and Eve and on the serpent and they are driven away from the Garden of Eden, driven away from God's presence. There's a promise though that one day there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deal once and for all with Satan, sin, and death, would eradicate the world from this sin problem that's not just out there, but it's like in here. It's in my heart and it's in your heart that makes us part of the crowd that would say crucify him. Everything is happening according to plan. And if you wanna understand more deeply the plan that is unfolding, one of, I would say, like the big hyperlink that would take us, like where there's so many references here, when it says, they divided my clothes and they cast lots for my clothing. Take some time, you can do it this afternoon, sometime this week, I would encourage you, read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is referenced throughout, here in John's account of the crucifixion, in some of the other gospel accounts, It's in Psalm 22 that we hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus is quoting this when he's on the cross. That this was so a part of his mind and thinking and on his heart, he is quoting and these things are being lived out. Like Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18 says this, for dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before life of Christ. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is being lived out in real time there on the cross. And one of the lessons of this is that God is working his plan. And part of his plan just a moment, we'll get to it. as the eighth lesson, but one of the things that's sandwiched in between here is Jesus is put on that cross. Think about this for a moment. There's this interaction. The heading in my Bible says, Jesus's provision for his mother. You're seeing the care. You're seeing the compassion of Jesus. Maybe a way to think about it is this. You are always seen and known by Jesus. So he says to his mom, He says to this woman, he's like, here is your son. And more than likely, this is a reference to John, who's actually writing this. So John is there at the foot of the cross. And think about this. And there is Jesus' mother looking at the one that she gave birth to, who's been nailed upon this torture device, this Roman cross. And if there was ever a moment... Where you would have given Jesus a pass for like him not being fully with it, not maybe recognizing like who's around him, not seeing some of the needs around him. It would be this moment, right? I mean, the searing pain. The way crucifixion worked was oftentimes it would actually end up killing you by asphyxiation because you would get so tired of trying to get a breath because getting a breath involved in order to get air into your lungs, you would have to press down on the nails, on the stakes that are driven through your feet so you could raise up just to be able to breathe in the air and then you would collapse again. And eventually you would run out of strength to be able to lift yourself up. But while you still had some strength, you had to calculate the cost of each breath. Like that breath that you just took, like it didn't cost you anything, you didn't think of anything, it's just like happening. But to be there on that cross knowing, no, if I'm gonna take air into my lungs right now, I'm going to have to press down onto these massive spikes that have been driven through my feet and my ankles and the pain of that. Like that's what Jesus is dealing with. That's what's happening, he's bleeding out, his back has been, had the flesh ripped off of it and he had to carry the cross himself All of this is happening, and what does he do? He sees John, he sees the people that are gathered around him, and he sees his mother, and he wants her to be taken care of. He wants, when he is gone, for her to be provided for. Joseph is long gone at this point. Most scholars believe that he must have died at some point during Jesus' upbringing. And so without provision, she would have just been out on her own. And so Jesus sees her, but friends, hear this. He doesn't just see his mother. As important as that is, the reality of Jesus is he has looked down through the portal of human history, right? The history that he's written, and he has seen you, and he has seen me. And he's gone on a rescue mission to get us back. The Christian counselor and author, Kurt Thompson, speaks of this oftentimes. He says, we all are born into the world looking for someone looking for us. Hear that again? All of us, we have this innate desire that we're all born into this world looking for someone looking for us. So a young child, right an infant like they can't even verbalize this or you know make sense of this but they know, right? They're they're looking for someone like who's going to care for me? Who's going to feed me? Who's going to change me? Who's going to help soothe me? It's a disposition. Unless we think we outgrow that, right? Like, no, we don't. Like, there's this insecurity. There's this part of us that always has this longing. Like, who's going to be looking for me? The trauma of middle school, right? Walking into a new place and going into a lunchroom and wondering, like, is anybody going to see me? Is anybody going to welcome me? Is anybody going to allow me to sit at their table? Some of us are like, hey, I haven't graduated from middle school yet. Like, we still deal with that we're always looking for somebody looking for us. Who sees me? And if they actually do really see me, will they love me? Will they care for me? Will they reject me? The human heart is always wondering these things. If we're honest, that that drives so much of who we are. And know this, Jesus in that moment is the person who sees his mother. And he provides for her. But it's not just the care that he provides for her as he's bleeding out on the cross. He sees you and he sees me. Jesus has been looking for you. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. When that sheep runs off, I go looking for them. Even in our times of rebellion, where well, we're not really even looking for him, or at least we say that we're not. We're always looking for somebody looking for us. And the cross tells us that Jesus sees you, that he knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows that you were part of the crowd and I was part of the crowd. And our voice said, crucify him. And yet he continues to care for us. He's dying in this moment for you and me, people that murdered him. Like he sees us and he knows the worst of us. He's like, hey, I know that you're just You're looking for some satisfaction. You're looking for life. You're looking for this union. It's like, I've come to actually provide that. I see you and I know you. And if you doubt that I love you, look no further than my outstretched arms. Like, that's what he's actually communicating. And so the eighth lesson then, as we look into this, I would say this. The cross is the declaration not of defeat, but of victory. Like, this is actually what's taking place. Sometimes we can read this and think for a moment, like, oh my goodness, right? Like, Jesus is the one, and he's there, like, oh, all this terrible stuff is happening to him, which it is. But the narrative, the way John is writing this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is meant to clearly communicate. No, Jesus is in control. Jesus is making this happen. I mean, even at the end of this section where he says, Jesus gave up his spirit. His spirit wasn't taken from him. His life wasn't taken from him. He says, I will go and give my life. He's the active agent. No one takes it from him. He gives it willingly. And so as we look at verses 28 to 30, it says this. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, and some translations would say accomplished. So hear these words. Accomplished, fulfilled, finished in these few verses knowing that everything was now finished or accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. I mean, even that just for a moment. Hyperlinks all over the place. It's Passover. Literally, the lambs are being slaughtered. The Passover lambs are being slaughtered, and there we have what? We have the ultimate Passover lamb that is Jesus being put to death we know the passover story is the story of the liberation of god's people from slavery in egypt to be delivered to the promised land and the final act right was that the egyptian like the firstborn were all killed and the angel of death passed over how the passover lamb was slaughtered the blood was put on the doorpost how are the how's the blood put on the doorpost tells us with hyssop I mean, all of these things, these are not inconsequential details. These are all links that are just saying, this is the story that is being told. It's the liberation of God's people. Accomplished, fulfilled, and then Jesus says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so again, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 15, we see part of this fulfillment My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. This is being fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I thirst. I mean, the one who's the living water is now thirsting. He's become that one. He entered into your story and my story so that we would never thirst. Even when we think about all that's been accomplished, just think about this for a moment. John is trying to tell us not only in his account, but throughout the gospel accounts. There were so many ways this story could have gone sideways. Jesus is born, and guess what? There's a wicked ruler named Herod. you remember that? Herod has a, there's like, is just bent on killing Jesus. And so he has all these little boys killed, and Jesus escapes to Egypt. What if he'd been killed by Herod? Right? Jesus gets baptized, comes out of the water, goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and is tempted by Satan, he's tempted by the devil. What if Jesus had given in to temptation? What if Jesus, when he was at Caesarea Philippi and told the disciples, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail, and then began to describe that he was actually going to have to die, and Peter rebuked him, and Peter said, no way, and Jesus had to say to Peter, now get behind me, Satan. Like, what if he had listened to that? What if Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or he's praying, can this cut pass? What if he actually said, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this. But instead, prayed, not my will, but Your will be done. What about when his family showed up, including his own mother that he's providing for? That they all think he's mad. They're all just trying to get him to come home, like stop this silliness and this madness. I mean, on and on and on. We could go. What if Pilate had released him? God is sovereign. God is working His plan. It's all being accomplished. It's all being fulfilled. And so there's this thirst that's spoken of as we read just a little bit later in John, or sorry, Psalm 22, 27 to 8. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. What is happening here is the first half of Psalm 22 is all about pain and suffering and the evil being done to this person feeling that he's been forsaken by God, and then it turns a corner. And you read the second half, and it's about life, and it's about salvation, and it's about victory. And Jesus is saying, here on the cross, this is what's actually being lived out. And then he would say these words, it is finished. Another way that can be translated is like, it's all done. And Psalm 22 speaks of this in verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. There's the story that's gonna be told You and I are the beneficiaries of that story being told about Jesus, about his righteousness. And they will say this. They will declare what he has done. They will declare it's all done. They will declare it's finished. Which on the one hand is Jesus saying, hey, I had all these plans and it's finished. Like the time maybe you know, when you put together a plan for something for work or your home and you see it to completion, you're like, yes. And that word can mean that. But this phrase that we have as it's finished, where it's all done, is really one word here. And oftentimes in the scriptures, it doesn't just speak of the completion of something that would includes that. It speaks of a debt that is owed. And when that debt is actually paid and it's stamped paid in full, you would say this word: like it's finished, it's all done, it's all been taken care of. That's what's actually taking place there on the cross, this massive debt of sin because of our sin that you and I, like we owe, and we can't get out of it. Because in this economy, the way that things work with our debt because of sin, the more than we try and dig ourselves out, let's do some good things, let's love people, let's do that, thinking we can do it on our own, the deeper the debt, the bigger the debt gets because we cannot save ourselves. And Jesus is communicating, I am the one who has done this. And so maybe you'd ask this question, which I think is worth asking, like, you know, couldn't Jesus just say, hey, you know what, everybody, I forgive you, don't worry about it. Couldn't God just say this? But the reality is, if he's going to pay, if God's gonna pay for like, this infinite number of sins that humanity has committed, like, the reality is forgiveness costs, right? Like, it always costs, somebody always has to pay. You invite me over for dinner, I'm like, oh, that's very nice of you, and I drive up into your driveway and I forget to hit the brakes and I just plow through your garage, right, garage door. Um, you come out and you're just like, well, that's an awkward start to dinner, for one, okay? Um, but then also, if you come out and you're like, hey, don't worry about it, that's very kind of you, let come in, let's have the meal together. You can say don't worry about it, but somebody's gotta fix the garage door, right? If I borrow your phone, I drop it on the ground, the screen cracks, and you say, don't worry about it. Okay, but somebody's got to pay for it to get repaired. So either you absorb the cost or I'm going to absorb the cost, but somebody's going to pay. I mean, this is how it works. It works this way relationally. This quote has always helped me as I think about this. Like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why didn't he just say, you know what? Don't worry about it, you're forgiven. Because forgiveness always costs. Think about times when somebody, it's one thing economically and financially, but I think the more painful thing is, what about that person that betrayed you, the person that stabbed you in the back, the person that sinned against you in such a grievous way, and then you're like, I, I'm called to forgive them? What does that look like? Well, you know at one level, it is so costly. This is why in The Reason for God, Tim Keller says it this way, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself, and instead of taking it out of the other person, it hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. If you've truly forgiven somebody to that depth where you know like, hey, they took my happiness, my reputation, opportunity, they like, robbed me of all that. And the words you would never speak, but you think in your car when you're driving down the road and, you're th- and these things start to replay, right? The tapes start to replay in your mind. and think, if I could only do this to them and get them back. Like the, the darkness that exists in our, like we know, like to, to forgive somebody, like oh, it's costly. Jesus here, when he says it's finished, he's paying for it all. There's nothing to add to it. When he says it's finished, he meant it. Your debt has been paid. And so church, our call is to worship him. Our hope and prayer, even as we deal with this text and we go through it, in a story that is probably familiar to many of us, even just you interview the general person on the street, like what did Jesus do? Well, he died on the cross. Like Lots of, lots of people know that. But doesn't mean lots and lots of people are worshiping Jesus. There was a debt that was paid. Maybe a way to think about this is understanding, like to the degree that you and I understand our debt, how we understand how indebted we are to God, determines, I would say, or kind of directs, maybe a way to think about it is like our devotion, our worship. Somebody pays your library fine. You forgot to bring a book back. You're like, oh, it was 2020. Just a lot of things going on, right? Um, and it's like, all right, there's $3 that you owe the library. You might be thankful for somebody that's like, hey, I, I paid that for you. I took care of that. I happened to be over there. They said you had a, I don't know why they're talking about your fines, but whatever. Go with the story, right? Um, and, and so you end up paying for that or somebody pays that for you. You're like, okay, you would appreciate that person, right? But my guess is like every day of the rest of your life, you're not thinking about that. But imagine the gratitude if the debt is your mortgage, your college loans, your medical bills that have just piled up and you've got no insurance and no way to pay for this and somebody rolls up and it's like, I'm paying your debt, it's finished, it's paid in full, it's taken care of, it's done. That's a different level. One's a library, find, oh, thank you. And one is life altering. And even that is just scratching the surface of what Jesus has done. He says it's finished, the best, that's the best news ever. It's done, your debt, that deserved to be, which would deserve being cut off from God, we deserve hell. When we would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to why is because of our sin, because of our debt, because of our rebellion. Jesus doesn't deserve any of that, but he willingly takes it in our place. That's so for the last few moments, the last couple things here, all of these prophecies, all of the things that are spoken of here, they're all meant to help us like see it personally. That's why John says, he who has testified so that you may also believe. In the text, as you read 31 through 37, it says not one of his bones will be broken. Again, this is a hyperlink, it's back to the Passover lamb who had to be without blemish. They break the bones, why? Well, they, that would speed up the death process. The Jews are concerned about Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath is bleeding out before their eyes. They're concerned about ritual when Jesus is here, the fulfillment of all the law, and they're not getting it. And so they're like, hey, we don't want to taint the Sabbath. We can't leave this. It's a curse to be hanging out on this tree. We can't deal with, with that. And so like, hey, will you expedite this? And so the Roman soldiers go and they break the legs of the two other criminals. And once the legs are broken, you can't stand up and breathe anymore. They die very quickly, but Jesus has already died. This is all telling the story. Exodus 12, it shall be eaten. This is about the Passover lamb. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. Jesus, none of his bones were broken. Is this hitting us personally? Are we seeing the fulfillment? Are we seeing the story? His side was pierced. The blood and the water come out. It's a way of telling us medically he was dead. People will come up with stories and say, oh, he just, he just fainted. He just passed out for a little bit. The Roman centurions, the soldiers, were very good at their job, and their job was to kill people. They knew when somebody had died. They pierced. They sent a spear through his side. But this is all part of the story. Zechariah 12, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. This is what God is pouring out. Please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn when we understand our need and we see the grace that is poured out. And as the prophecy continues, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to what? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is what Jesus has done. He's paying our debt. That's the question will we believe? So we'll close with this. I know there's a lot in here. I appreciate your patience in this. 38 to 42 is the work. John tells the story like, hey, so what happens? Jesus dies, then what takes place? This is leading up to what we'll be in next week. Come back next week. It's Easter Sunday in November. It's gonna be awesome, all right? (laughs) John 19, 38 to 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus's body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body away. Nicodemus, if you remember him, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Just an aside, I shouldn't be making asides this far in, but man, Nicodemus, under the cover of night, Bit by bit, by bit, and now he's here. Like I'm a disciple of Jesus. I want, I want to follow him. What he's doing here. God makes disciples at His own pacing in His own time, right? Sometimes it's like feels like that. Sometimes it's like Nicodemus. It's like bit by bit, by bit. But he is faithful, and he's doing his work. They took verse forty, Jesus' body. They wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now hear this, verse forty-one and forty-two. Here's the lesson. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. We'll close with this. Friends, the story we're part of, it started in the garden. It is not coincidental or incidental that John tells us, guess where the tomb is? Guess where Jesus is placed? It's in a garden. And in case you missed it the first time, it's in a garden. They're telling a story of the garden, like how God is bringing about new creation. New creation is coming. There is the day where Jesus, here is the man, This second Adam who is crucified, he's put into the ground. The seventh day, the day of rest, Jesus will rest in the tomb. But my friends, there is an eighth day that is coming, and that is the day of new creation. That's the story of resurrection. Our story doesn't end at the cross with the bloodied and murdered Jesus. Our story continues three days later as Jesus conquers Satan, sin and death, and rises again and ushers in this new creation. What the first Adam couldn't do in the first garden, Jesus brings forth in this garden, that from the tomb, new life is bursting forth, that's the story we're part of. That's what John 19 is telling. And so we're going to celebrate that as we continue in worship. I want to give you a moment here, I'll pray, but what is it you need to repent of? Where do you need to remember and rejoice in the gospel? I told you, like, it's Easter celebration next week in the middle of November. We're gonna celebrate for our first time here, baptisms. If you're somebody that's never taken this step, like, sign up or come talk to us afterwards, right? Like, new life, this is the story that we get to be part of by God's grace. And so if you're a follower of Christ, be it a child to an adult, doesn't matter age, but if you're a follower of Jesus, come on, let's get baptized and be a beautiful thing to celebrate So let me pray for us, then I'll invite us and give us some instructions on how we'll continue in our our service. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for the cross. May we not grow cold or callous to the reality of it. Thank you that, Jesus, you accomplished, you fulfilled, you finished, you paid the debt, you gave up your life. We give you praise for that. We thank you for that reality. Thank you that it changes everything. And would you help us to appreciate the depth of of our own sin and our debt and how you have paid it all, that it might result in you getting more glory and us experiencing more joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.